I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of John. We're going to look at chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to tell you some preliminary things. One is this. If you look in the bulletin and notice that the outline is equality and judgment and resurrection, I want you to know those three things are actually my first point. And I have two. So if you're one that takes notes and want to kind of know where we're going and all that sort of thing, those three things, equality, judgment, and resurrection, are, are my first point, and we're going to cover those in verses 18 through 30. Got it? So far, so good? Second point is going to be witnesses, and that's verse 31 through 47. So those are the two points we're going to look at this morning, all right? 18 through 30, and then 31 through 47. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. So now when we get the resurrection, you would have thought, wow, we're almost done. But we actually got a whole other section we got to cover. Um, the second thing I wanted to tell you on the front end is remember that what we're going to read this morning is a continuation of what we looked at last week and what John Paul talked to us about last week, that Jesus has just healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And then we got to see the fallout of that. And this is the upshot. The Jews were really upset that Jesus healed this man. They were building their whole lives around a house of cards, as Sean talked about. She used, matter of fact, summarize it better than I can, but I'm going to summarize it this way. They were trying to live their lives as if the grace of God was not real and wasn't working in the world. They were trying to live and imagine life as if grace wasn't true. Well, this week, we're going to pick up the story. 19, 18 through 47. I'm reading 18 because that's where we stopped last week, and it puts a, a pinpoint um, focus on how the Jews, what they thought of Jesus. But these verses, 19, 18 through 47, continue the story. So we're just picking up on where we left off last week, all right? So I'm going to read 18 through verse 30. Listen to this. This is God's Word. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son." that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is true. Jesus, we thank you that you are the word made flesh. Holy Spirit, you are the one that opens us up to the truth of the word. So we ask, triune God, that you would act on us, change us, convince us in brand new ways that Jesus is everything and that life is real, true, everlasting life. It's only found in him. For your glory, I pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of a guy named Evil Knievel? You ever heard of this guy? If you haven't, here's a little bit about him. This is a guy that is absolutely famous for his jumpsuit. And not only that, he is famous for uh, making these crazy motorcycles and, and rockets and for doing unbelievable stunts. He is considered a bona fide daredevil. There was actually a New York Times article about him in roughly June of last year, kind of chronicling Evil Knievel's life and the stunts that he was willing to perform, and even oftentimes how he would fail, which is fascinating to think about. I mean, there were times in which he would jump over like 13 double-decker buses and 50 stacked cars. He did all these amazing things, and many times he did even fail. He was the guy that really foreshadowed all of the extreme sports that we see today. He was kind of the forerunner of all of that, as well as others. One of the most daring things that Evil Knievel ever did, he actually did this before I was born, is he decided that he was going to try to jump over the Snake River Canyon in Idaho. Matter of fact, he wanted to jump over the Grand Canyon, but the government wouldn't give him permission. And so he scaled the country trying to find out where he could execute this enormous jump. So he found this place in Idaho, Snake River Canyon. It's like 1,600 feet wide. And he contracted this engineer from NASA or someone who was doing lots of things with the space program to make this rocket and to make this parachutes and everything that he needed for this jump. Well, it just so happened that as he took off and was supposed to accelerate up to 200 miles an hour, he got to the end of the ramp and took off over the, over the, over the Snake River Canyon, and his parachutes deployed. And he ended up going straight down and sinking into the canyon. He left with just barely a broken nose. That was it. But it was this unbelievable feat that he was trying to accomplish. And not long before he died, I actually listened to an interview. And it was a man who was interviewing him about his whole life. And let me tell you, it was a pretty intense interview. And it got to the point in the interview in which the guy that was interviewing Evil Knievel said something along these lines. 
what were your chances of surviving that Snake River Canyon jump? And Evil Knievel said, eh, it was probably 50-50. Actually, the engineer that I hired blew the whole thing. He was actually really upset about this guy because apparently he had had several malfunctions recently and a couple people burned, which makes you wonder why in the world Evil Knievel hire this guy anyway. But he was pressed even more. So, Evil, you're telling me that you thought you had a coin flip's chance of survival. Why in the world would you do this? And there was this five-second pause, and even Evil Knievel says, do you know who the heck I am? Mic drop. Interview over. Everything that you could possibly get from an interview happened with that one statement. Do you know who I am? Everything you could possibly want was right there. When you think about what Evil Knievel said, he was a little bit miffed that he was even asked this question, right? Why would you, why would you attempt this if you knew you had a 50% chance of dying? He says, are you serious? Do you know who I am? My whole life says that I wouldn't be afraid of this. Everything about me, my whole history, indicates that this jump is exactly what I should be doing. Why would you even ask me that? You say you get me, we've done this interview, and you've gotten a lot of information out of me, and you think you know me, but yet you ask me that? Do you really? Are you really serious? Do you really get who I am? This, that answer from Evil Knievel, is exactly the way that Jesus responds to the Jews. Jesus has just healed a lame man, and they say to him that you make yourself equal with God, and Jesus says, do you know who I am? Do you really understand who I am? That's exactly the mentality of what happens in these verses that we're continuing to follow this morning in the story. 19 through 47 are working that out. And the whole point of these verses is that we might understand Jesus' authority. The whole point of this is to understand the authority that Jesus has. He wants us to know his authority. There's even a sense in which, in which he wants us to feel the authority that he has. And he wants us to know where this authority comes from. This is why Jesus, in verses 19 through 30, talks about equality and judgment and resurrection. Because he is actually looking at the Jews and saying to them, Yes, you have said that I am equal with God. Do you really know who I am? Do you really understand what that means? Look at verses 19 and 20. This is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to the Jews, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is saying, I don't do anything solo. 
I can't do anything in a solo way. I haven't been rogue in anything that I have ever done. The Father loves me, and we do the same things. We work together. As a matter of fact, what you will see us doing is far greater than what you just observed. It's as if Jesus was telling them, that guy that was lame for 38 years and I healed him, don't make a mountain out of a molehill here. That was nothing compared to what I will do. It is nothing compared to what the Father and I will do. There are so much greater things that are going to be done. So let's not make a mountain out of a molehill here. Let's look at that as an example of much greater things that can happen. This is why Jesus moves so seamlessly in verses 21 and following to talking about judgment. You want to know something that's greater than healing a lame man? It's the fact that all judgment has been entrusted to me, Jesus is saying. Look at verses 21 through 24, even including verse 30. In particular, Jesus says it explicitly in verse 22. He has given, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus has been given the right to judge everyone and everything. And if you don't honor the Son, if you don't honor Jesus, then you don't honor the Father. If we don't receive the words of Jesus, then we are under his judgment. That's exactly what he says in these verses. Now, I know when we talk about judgment, it's kind of hard to take in, right? So just for a couple minutes, I just want to take a couple minutes and try to remind us why the idea that Jesus is the judge is hard, but really, really good and necessary. You know, when you think about life, and when you think about the world, and you think about the world that we're living in, there is so much wrong in the world, isn't there? There is so much wrong in the world that we're living in. And even if you're here this morning and you are not currently a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just exploring who Jesus is or thinking about Christianity, or maybe you're coming to grips with how frustrated you've been at the church or with Christians, I don't know where you are on that spectrum. But you know as well as we do, you know that deep, deep down, there needs to be some vindication for the wrongs that have been done. You know that there needs to be ultimate vindication for all of the wrong things and the broken things that we see in the world. There has to be. Otherwise, we wouldn't deep down know that things should be made right. Who is it? Is it Martin Luther King who said something along the lines of the arc of the universe is really, really long, but it tends toward what? Justice? Something like that? The arc of the universe is really, really long, but it tends toward justice? You see, we all know that there needs to be ultimate vindication for all the wrongs that are in the world, but then we run into a problem. Because we all, deep down, if nothing else, we all deep down want justice, but we don't necessarily want a judge, do we? Because when you start thinking about a judge, you start thinking about, mm, this sounds really icky. It sounds really threatening. And maybe even more personally, it can sound very exposing. 
Because all of us would admit that we know people like the leaders of Hamas or Al-Qaeda, that they need a judge. But we oftentimes feel like we're better than they are. But the truth is, we're not. And whenever we realize that we're no better, it means that we have to also admit that we should meet the same judge that we want others to meet. It means that if we want vindication and ultimate vindication, if we want justice, we've got to have a judge. And when we really begin to realize that we're no better than anybody else, it means that we have to admit that we must appear before the same justice and be scrutinized by the same justice that we want everyone else to be scrutinized by. And what that means is that if we have a real judge who has ultimate justice, it means that that judge doesn't exactly grade on approximations. It's not as though he grades on a curve. And we're just not as bad as everybody else, but so we should be fine. He doesn't grade like that at all. A true judge who has ultimate power to vindicate and do what is right is exactly correct with everything that he does. It means he never grades on a curve. And that means, again, we have another problem. You see, when Jesus... When Jesus heals this man, this man who's been lame for 38 years, this is why John Paul's emphasis was spot on last week. This is why Jesus is offering the man and the Jews who get upset with him, he is offering them grace. He is coming to them in grace. He is telling the lame man, go and sin no more. He's tearing down the house of cars that the Jews are building their lives around. They are trying to build their lives around. I think I can make my life great apart from grace. And Jesus is ripping that apart. And he's saying, you can't. And then they begin to think, oh, well, Jesus, if you're tearing all this down, if you say you can forgive sins, you are making yourself equal with God. And Jesus is saying, you're exactly right. And that means I'm coming to you in grace, but all judgment has been committed to me. Do you know who I really am? I am the one to whom the Father has entrusted all judgment. This is why we can't live our lives without grace. Because when we appear before the judge, and when our lives are scrutinized, we either are going to stand in our own definitions of who we are and who we should be and who other people should be and what they should do, or we stand there based on what God has done and who he says we are and how he answers all of our brokenness and sin between each other and between God whether that's killing millions of people or just murdering them in our heart. We all need grace. Every single one of us. Just as much as anyone else. 
There is nothing in us that makes us more acceptable or better than someone else before God. Nothing. Jesus says, do you really know who I am? I am equal with God. I actually have been entrusted with all judgment. And then he leaves, even weaves this into it. And if you're thinking about judgment, then we've got to think about resurrection. Look at what he says in 25 through 29. Let me paraphrase it for you. The time is coming when people who are in the grave will hear the voice of Jesus and they will come out of the grave. Those who have done good to life. Those who have done evil to judgment. And we need to explain this just briefly. Otherwise, we might be mistaken about what really Jesus is saying here. You see, this statement of those who have done good to life and those who have done evil to judgment, this is not anti-grace at all. You see, grace has been preceding these verses all along. Grace is there. So don't isolate those verses as if to say, well, I just have to do enough good in order to have resurrection of life. And if I do too many evil things, then I'll have resurrection to judgment. No, this isn't anti-grace at all. One way that the Bible often talks about obedience and life is this idea, this analogy of fruit. So there's fruit in our lives, which is obedience. It is doing what is good, all in faith. You see, when you think about fruit being an analogy to obedience and doing everything in our lives in faith, fruit is what illustrates that the tree is alive. Fruit does not make the tree alive. Our good works do not make our heart good or alive to God. Obedience and the fruit that is in our life is the evidence that our hearts are already alive. Make sense? So Jesus is really saying here, are you living and have you lived a life of faith? Do you live your life in dependence on me or not? Because our lives are always illustrated by fruit. And fruit reveals if our heart is alive. That's why Jesus says this. You see, resurrection is real. And it's coming. And there'll be a day in which Jesus speaks and everyone hears and comes out of the grave. It's going to be amazing. It is an absolute fact it is what makes our understanding of Jesus so profound that there is good news. Death has been conquered. You see, these are the reasons in 31 through 47 why Jesus says this is all true. Look quickly with, the, with me with these, if you would, please. I know we don't have much time. Just hang in there. Jesus says, do you really know who I am? Because if you really think I'm equal with God, that means a whole lot more than maybe what you bargained for. It means that I have all judgment. It means the resurrection is real. And I don't say these things just out of my own mouth. Look at verse 31. See, if Jesus says, if I just say these things and you don't have to believe it's true, I could be crazy. But there are other people who are witnesses to my life. 
And he lays those out for us in 31 through 47. You see, he says to them, here's one witness, John the Baptist. Look at verse 32 through 35. John the Baptist was a witness of me. Now remember, the Jews, the people that he was talking to in the immediate context, they're the ones that sent the delegation to Jesus to investigate what he was doing. They were the ones who said that John the Baptist's teaching was amazing and that he must have been sent from God. And Jesus says, don't you remember the testimony, the witness of John the Baptist? Everyone heard John the Baptist's teaching. Everyone heard his message. Everyone knew that his message was totally about Jesus. Jesus mentions John the Baptist because he is exposing their hard heart. He's exposing their duplicity. That they would say what John the Baptist said was true, and now here they are saying, well, I'm not sure that's true. And then Jesus moves into talking about the witness of the Father. Look at verse 36 and 37. You see, there was this witness when Jesus was baptized of the Father. The heavens opened up and the Father said, Behold my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Everyone heard that. Jesus is not making these things up. There's the witness of John the Baptist. There's the evidence of the Father. Jesus had the approval of the Father, of God. And then Jesus even turns to them in verse 39 and 40 and even says, what about your own scriptures? What about the Word? The Bible itself. Look at what he tells them in verse 39. You search the scriptures. He tells them the, the idea that Jesus communicates there is that they have meticulously, scrupulously looked through the Bible. They have studied it. They have examined it. They have searched it. But they, don't, but they don't receive Jesus. But they haven't made the connection that everything that they have studied in the Scriptures points them to Him. Jesus is saying, the whole Bible has been pointing to me. He's saying to them, you don't even receive your own book. You don't even properly understand your own book. And specifically in verse 45 through 47, he tells them about Moses. You see, he even says that Moses was telling you about me. I can't imagine how the Jews would have received that. I can imagine that they, they might have chuckled a little bit. I'm sure they were by this point pretty, pretty angry. So maybe they wouldn't have chuckled. Maybe they just would have gotten a deeper level of anger, you know. Because the people that Jesus was talking to would have been those who memorized Moses. They wouldn't have just had this familiarity. They knew that they had meticulously studied the Bible. They memorized it. And Jesus says, you have read Moses, probably memorized it, and you haven't picked up what he was saying. You weren't smelling what he was cooking. You weren't picking up what he was laying down. He was telling you about me. Everything that Moses wrote about in those first five books of the Bible are about me. And they didn't see it. Yeah, they would have been upset. You see, this whole section is all about authority. It's all about the authority of Christ. They are upset with him. In verse 18, it tells you that they want to kill him. And Jesus is looking at them, talking to them, saying, 
do you really know who I am? Is what you said about me, do you really think that that's true? Let's go all the way back to the beginning of this book together. Just so you can get a sense of the momentum that has been building. Because all of this is about authority. Jesus is the Word made flesh. John 1. Jesus is the temple. John 1 and John 2. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is the groom. He was the one who was at the wedding feast thinking about his own bride, realizing that he would have to lay down his own life for her. Jesus is the one who gives new birth, John 3. Jesus knows everything that you have ever done, John 4. Jesus is everything that the law is describing. Everything that the law is describing points to and explains Jesus. Jesus is Sabbath rest, first part of John 5. Jesus is God. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is resurrection. Everything here is pointing to the authority of Christ. Now, if all that just sounds like a massive data dump, I'm so sorry. My landing gear is out, and we're hovering around. We're about to touch down, so hang in there just a little bit longer. This whole section is showing us the very core of Christianity. It's showing us the very heart of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is a personal relationship with God. Jesus heals this man, and the Jews are upset, just like we are whenever Jesus tells us that we are trying to live our lives as if grace isn't true, just when we realize that we are trying to build our own life around a house of cards. And Jesus doesn't run away. He presses in. He stays with us. He stays with us. He is being deeply relational with them and with us. Whether you have questions about resurrection, whether you have questions about judgment, whether you have questions about whether or not Jesus was God, think about this. Jesus isn't backing down from your questions or mine. He's pressing in. And this is what that means at times. What it means is that real life like my life, my actual life, pull out my iPhone, look at my calendar this week, look at all my appointments, think about where I have go, what I've got to do, who I've got to meet with, how, whatever I have to prepare for, this means that real life. The real life that I'm married, the real life that I have three children, that life. Real life is not unqualified affirmation. My life this week is not that my kids affirm everything that I'm doing, nor is it that I affirm everything they're doing. Real life is not trying to live getting or gaining unqualified affirmation. Love is not unqualified affirmation. 
Living my life is not trying to just overcome all the haters and all the doubters by my persistence. Real life. Real life. This is how you know when you're in a real relationship with someone. They tell you no. Real life is about being in relationship with God and other people who tell you no. At times they tell you no. Otherwise, if we are only in relationships with God, with the Bible, with other people, if we are in relationships where, where no one can tell us no, all we're doing is creating a narcissistic feedback loop. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus presses in on us. God speaks to us through his word. His word tells us at times, no. Jesus tells the Jews no. Jesus tells us no. God tells us no. The Bible tells us no. The Holy Spirit tells us no. We have to have this in our lives. And when the good news of Jesus comes into our lives, he is not afraid to tell us that we are not enough He is not afraid to tell us that we are building our lives around a house of cards. Jesus is not afraid to show us in our lives where we are trying to live our lives as if grace isn't true and isn't powerful. And he's going to do that over and over again. And that means that our view of God might be wrong. Our view of judgment might be wrong. Our view of resurrection might be wrong. Our view of the Bible might be wrong. Our view of the Old Testament might be wrong, even if we've memorized it, if we miss Jesus. It means that my marriage might not be great if I've missed Jesus. It means my career might not be great if I've missed Jesus. It means everything about my life might be wrong if I've missed Jesus. You see, life with God is not a spiritual merger and acquisition. You remember this from Nicodemus? Life with God, the message of the gospel, is not a spiritual merger and acquisition. It's being found in Jesus. Over and over and over. The Jews, and oftentimes we search the scriptures, we oftentimes don't let them search us and get to our motives and change our attitudes and our dispositions. Oftentimes we just look to the Bible and want to tell us what behavior we should do or not do. And the scriptures have to continue to search us and define God for who he is and define sin for what it is and define true life for what it is and define Jesus for who he is and define our future for what God says it is. A movie came out a few years ago. It's one of my top 10 favorite. It's called The Book of Eli. Maybe you've heard of it, watched it. I don't know. Great movie. It's post-apocalyptic, and there's a tension between two characters. And there's tension in these two characters over a book, the Bible. And one of the characters is played by Gary Oldman. And he was trying to find the Bible. He was on a hunt to find the Bible. He wanted to get the copy, the last remaining copy of the Bible because of this. He thought if he had the Bible, he could control everyone. 
He thought, if I have the Bible, I have all authority, and I can do whatever I want to anyone, anywhere. The other character was Denzel Washington. And Denzel had the Bible. And what happened with Denzel was this. The Bible controlled him. It defined everything about him and all of reality. Future, authority, everything. It defined everything for him. And I'd love to say more, but I can't. The whole application for us is to surrender the totality of our lives to God and to live by grace, to be defined by Jesus, to follow Him and obey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that When these Jews got upset and wanted to kill you and committed to doing that, you didn't run away. You were willing to press in. And Jesus, we acknowledge that oftentimes in our lives we may disagree with you, but it usually doesn't rise to the level of verbalizing that we want to kill you. And yet you continue to press in and ask questions and probe and challenge us to think. Thank you, Jesus, because if you didn't do that, we would think that we could somehow wiggle out from under your authority or just get more confident that we are our own authority. But you are relentless in showing us that you alone are God. You are relentless in offering us grace. So Holy Spirit, don't leave us alone until we live our lives by grace and are defined by Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.